The first thing to clear up is, what is the name of this seminar? And having only one string on my fiddle, it doesn't matter what we call it, that music sounds the same. <laughs> Some places it's called the challenge of sustainability, and other places it's called uh, uh, dependency, uh, avoiding or overcoming dependency. Anyway, welcome to all of you. Uh, my name is Glenn Schwartz, and let's see if our clicker's working. Yeah, right there it is. Um, I don't know why we have two names. I guess maybe we catch more fish if we give more options. I don't know. <laughs> I can't explain it. Um, uh, I'll start with my experience. And by the way, I want to introduce a colleague. He's sitting way in the back. Uh, stand up there, Dr. Keith. This is Dr. Keith Gammon, and he's an orthopedic surgeon from India. And uh, he and I do things together. And after a while, he's going to come up and say something about what's going on in Christian hospitals in India. But I'll run through uh, a lot of the material first uh, to get started. My own experience is that I lived and worked in Central Africa for most of the 1960s. I actually went to Africa by boat. I'm so old. I went to the mission field by boat. <laughs> 18 days on the water from New York to Cape Town. Uh, we didn't see land but one time, and it was so far away I couldn't even tell it was land was St. Helena Island, and they said, uh, you know, where Napoleon was banished to, but I would have thought it was a cloud if the captain hadn't pointed it out. Uh, I don't sail well, so fortunately I was only seasick one time, but unfortunately it lasted for 18 days. <laughs> um, so uh, most of the 1960s, then I decided to go for missionary training. Now, I don't recommend this. I don't recommend that you do the service first and get the training later, but that's the way it was in those days. I would not want a surgeon who was a good person, whose uh, intentions were all right, whose heart was in the right place, operating on me if he didn't have training. Because if he didn't have training and he started operating on my thoracic region, then my heart wouldn't be in its right place when he's done. So, <laughs> so I recommend getting missionary training, uh, but in those days we weren't uh, privileged. Went to Fuller Seminary School of World Mission. Did a two-year program, somewhat in desperation because of all that I had encountered in Central Africa, and went to uh, that school to study, and then got stuck in the machinery in that place, and uh, worked for six years as a servant of the faculty of the School of World Mission. And if you know the names, uh, McGavern, Tippett, Winter, Wagner, Kraft, Glasser, Edwin Orr, um, those are the people that I had the privilege of serving every single day for six years. <clears throat> and then, beginning in 1983, I, I uh, began to itinerate and... Um, since then, I've been conducting seminars and consultations on dependency and self-reliance, mostly in East, Central, and Southern Africa, but uh, almost every other continent as well. Uh, I have been on, on the road or in the air for much of that time, the last 20, 27 years. Our old professor Tippett used to say, you can't understand missiology apart from biography. In other words, if you know what I lived through in colonial Central Africa, you will understand why, why I am passionate about some things today. And other things, they don't move me so much. 
but my biography informs my missiology. Uh, and by the way, I'm not a medical missionary, but I did stay in the Holiday Inn Express <laughs> some time ago. <laughs> Only those who have seen that commercial on television know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I'm going to talk for a little bit about dependency and just raise awareness with you. I can answer all the questions there are. The solution to the problem of unhealthy dependency is different in different places. So uh, one answer doesn't fit all, and I won't try to answer uh, for every situation. What I do hope to do in this process is raise enough awareness that you will recognize the problem when you see it. And uh, then you, uh, I invite you to join me and others in searching for solutions. And uh, what the solution that uh, someone finds for a place in West Africa may be very different from some remote part of India or wherever, but answers are available. I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. We've been having a problem with this for some time. I flew from Nairobi to Dar es Salaam in a jumbo jet here several years ago, an Airbus. And when we touched down, that airplane shook rather violently, and it was actually scary. It was that bad. And the pilot came on and apologized for the rough landing. He said, um, I'm sorry for the rough landing. It has to do with the automatic braking system on this plane, and we've been having a problem with it for some time. (laughs) And we thought, you know, we just flew in this thing. They know it has a problem, and it's gone uncorrected. Well, I could say the same thing about this dependency thing. It's not new. It didn't just start yesterday. My conclusion is that the road to dependency is paved with good intentions. Well-meaning people are going out from many parts of the world, not just North America, but uh, Europe, Korea, and uh, with the best of intentions, they're trying to help. And sometimes they leave people uh, with uh, less of an ability to help themselves than if they hadn't gone. What do I mean by unhealthy dependency? I mean the kind which results from doing for people what they could do and should do for themselves. That is, if their dignity and and, uh, initiative were respected, they could do it for themselves. If you make people think they are poor, they may begin to believe you. Um, When I was growing up, there were nine children in our family, and I was talking to one of my brothers here some time ago, and I said, when we were growing up, did you think we were poor? And he said, no, we weren't poor. We didn't think of ourselves as being poor. Now, we knew that we didn't have a lot of things that the neighbors had, but it didn't make us poor. Well, I found out later on that even the poor people thought we were poor. (laughs) But we did not think of ourselves as being poor. Some time ago, I met a man from Uganda who said, we did not know we were poor until someone told us. Now, when someone tells you you're poor, and then you begin to believe it, then you begin to act like that. What I'm going to be talking about now for a little while is uh, the assumptions behind the best of intentions that we can come up with. What are those assumptions? Uh, Before I do that, I have two objectives. One is to show that unhealthy dependency can be avoided from the very beginning. There are places where missionaries have 
started churches, built hospitals, clinics, Bible schools, and so on like that. They did it in such a way that dependency did not develop. But I'd also like to show that unhealthy dependency can be overcome where it already exists. In other words, um, it's not a, a terminal illness. In fact, uh, somewhere I have some, if you remind me before we finish, I want to give everybody an article which I called, uh, Is There a Cure for, the, for Dependency Among Mission-Established Institutions? Um, but what I, what I meant to say by that uh, was that uh, it, it, there's a cure for it. It doesn't have to be that way. In other words, churches don't have to die from being dependent. Unhealthy dependency happens with the best of intentions. But sustainability takes planning, dedication, and a change of assumptions. And those are the assumptions I'm going to be talking about after a while. Now, let me just tell you that there are various reactions to the kind of thing I'm talking about. <coughs> Some people know how to avoid it instinctively. They haven't particularly had training. They just know that if they do the right thing, people will not become dependent on them. They'll become dependent on the Lord. It's like uh, uh, an innate ability to recognize it. Some people can't help themselves. Their human nature is coupled with good intentions and bingo. They're just pouring in resources and they don't realize that they're creating something that could very well last for generations or for uh, the lifetime of the people they're working with. But they just don't see anything wrong with it. They aren't even aware of it. Some are frustrated by it but don't know what to do about it. Um, Steve Sain is speaking in another uh, session right now. I uh, just saw him a few minutes ago and I said, I hope there's some people left over to come to our seminar because <laughs> he's, whenever you're up against Steve Sain, he can get a lot of people. But anyway, Steve Sain is one who was frustrated by the dependency syndrome but didn't know what it was. When he tells a story, as you know, he lived among the Wadani as a child. He grew up and then... Spent some of his uh, teenage years there. Then he left and he went to Wheaton College and he went into business. And he, uh, later on, God called him to go back to these people. And he went back in among the Wadani and he saw something that he didn't understand. He saw that their dignity had been affected by something. And he was puzzled as to what it was, frustrated over it. And uh, searching for answers, and one day went out to the edge of the village, to the uh, jungle, to a place called Shalmara, and someone gave him a copy of Mission Frontiers magazine, which was partic- that particular issue was all about dependency. And I and my colleagues uh, had written all the articles, and so he read this, and Steve said, "That's what this is. We're these people have an unhealthy dependency." He found out that the Wadani people could not have a conference uh, without having people come from North America. So they had just settled down to waiting for somebody to come and do for them what they could do or should do for themselves. Well, Steve took it so seriously that he went on to write a book. He has a little book called Great Omission, which is uh, about dependency. Frustrated by it, but didn't know what to call it. Some people become advocates for overcoming it. 
they learn about it. It makes so much sense to them. They say, look, this can be solved. I'm going to work at it. I'm going to do whatever is necessary to find out. And um, there are a number of PhD-level dissertations that have been done in, within the last 10 years on this subject of unhealthy dependency in the Christian movement. Um, one was done at Fuller Seminary called Mission in the Way of Paul. Another was done at Mid-America Baptist Seminary, uh, which I think is called The Roots and Remedies. Uh, a book is about to come out, Roots and Remedies of the Dependency Syndrome. I know of uh, three or four being worked on right now, researching at the Ph.D. level something about the uh, Dependency Syndrome. Some rationalize that there's nothing wrong with it. We are rich, they are poor, so just do whatever is necessary. Redistribute the wealth uh, through, through whatever means. And unfortunately, I think uh, there's, there's uh, a trend in secular literature like uh, the Millennium Goals, uh, The End of Poverty by Jeffrey Sachs, that feed this mentality. I'm also happy to say that there's a whole series of literature now in the secular world that says the opposite of that. There's a woman, a Zambian woman by the name of Dambisa Moyo, who's written a book called Dead Aid. You know, the opposite of Live Aid, which was the bands that were raising money, Bob Geldof and all of that. And uh, she has written a book called Dead Aid. And she's stronger in her assessment of this than, than I am, that uh, outside aid, for Africa particularly, is not solving the the uh, poverty problem it's actually contributing to it and there are various other books i could uh, i could mention one particularly good book is um, called uh, wealth at the bottom of the pyramid by ck prahalad uh, another is by a peruvian called the mystery of capital why capitalism works in north america but fails in many other parts of the world these are excellent books one is by william easterly called white man's burden these are all secular writers who are saying something similar to what I'm saying, drawing attention to the fact that for a real transformation to occur, it's going to take more than simply pouring in resources from the outside. In fact, uh, the theme running through this is that the pouring in of resources may actually be making the problem worse. But the good news is it does not need to be considered a terminal illness. There is a cure. I have a beginning caution. Be careful not to assume that people have nothing to give back to God. Assumptions, I think, are at the base of the problem. The assumptions with which we begin. I think assumptions are like little self-fulfilling prophecies, which if you begin with this assumption, you will end up over here. If you change the assumption back here and move over this way a little bit, you will end up over there. Because the assumption drives the process. And if the assumption is people are too poor to give anything to God, that will probably be true. They will hear you. They will listen to what you're saying. They will conclude that they are poor. We have a term for it in Africa. It's called confessing poverty. If you confess poverty, you're saying, I am poor, that's the way I am, it will never change. So we must be careful not to assume that people have nothing to give back to God. If you turn to the scriptures for a moment, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I uh, have my Bible here, but let me just, now let me get it and tell you what I want to say. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is, as you remember, taking a collection for the church in Jerusalem. And uh, this was an example of, and the only thing in the New Testament that I can see that is of this nature, uh, Paul is taking a collection on the mission field to give to the home church. There is no place that I can find anywhere in the New Testament where a collection is taken in a home church and sent to the mission field. If you want to analyze your mission program of your church on the basis of what the Bible is about, just check and see which direction the money goes. If it goes from the home church to the mission field, you can't find any support for that in the New Testament. Is that a strong statement or what? Well, it's the truth. I mean, it's just the way it is. Um, now, Paul was writing a letter here to the Galatians, or to the Corinthians. And he was telling the Corinthians about the Macedonians. And he was using the Macedonians as an example. I once heard about a, a rooster that found an ostrich egg. You know how big an ostrich egg is. And he rolled this ostrich egg over to the hen house and he called the hens over to look at it. And he said to the hens, I just want you to see what they're doing in other places. <laughs> uh, well, now, Paul, Paul, if Paul was taking a collection in uh, Macedonia for, Jer- for Jerusalem, he must have been taking it among people who were well off. Would you agree with me on that? that he was taking the collection among people who were well off, right? How many think that? Obviously, right? They're a tough crowd. Nobody believes that. Well, you're right. Listen to this. Paul was taking a collection among people who were in severe trial and extreme poverty. Have you ever thought about the ideal place to take a collection is among people who are in severe trial and extreme poverty? That's what Paul did. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. He gives them credit for giving so generously, they were giving beyond their ability. He says, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. They pleaded with Paul for the privilege of giving. These people were beggars. But what were they begging for? They were begging for the privilege of giving out of poverty and severe trial. Verse 5, he says, They did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And if you want to get a handle on the dependency mentality, unhealthy dependency, Ask yourself the question, are these people giving themselves first to the Lord? I was doing a seminar once in Lusaka, Zambia, and a young pastor stood up and said, Fundis, I I don't know what to do. The people in my church, they don't give. In fact, they don't even know the Lord. And I said, are you expecting people who don't know the Lord to put money in the church collection? You see, his challenge was not to teach stewardship or giving. His challenge was to introduce people to who Jesus is so that they could give back to God some of what God has already given to them. 
There are wonderful verses in uh, First Chronicles chapter 29 where King David is raising the money for the temp for the uh, the temple and or for the uh, yeah for the temple. And you know that God did not allow him to build the temple because he was a man of war, but he did do the fundraising for it. And he has this marvelous prayer in which he extols who God is, great uh, honor and power and uh, all of these, the splendor, they're all, they all belong to God. And wealth comes from you. And what we have here, what we are giving, really it came from you in the first place. We are only giving back to you what you have given to us. Now if you go on in this chapter, go down to verse 12, very interesting verse. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And I'm going to refer to that in a few minutes. Then you go on, there's another part of this chapter. If you're serious about working with people who are trapped in the dependency mentality, the latter part of this chapter, from verse 16 on, is about how to get the money that Paul collected from the Macedonians and how to get it to Jerusalem. And... uh, the point is, you got to have more than one person. Why? Because we want to take care of this money and make sure it all gets there. And uh, he even has this very interesting verse. This is the accountability issue. And if you have a church that is not able to get money from the people in the pew, ask yourself, how are they handling the money they do get? And Paul, and Paul says... We want two people to go with this money, so they chose Titus to to accompany this money to Jerusalem to make sure that it gets there. Because, he says, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of God, but also in the eyes of men. And this is a critical part of overcoming the dependency mentality. You want people to be able to see that what they give is being used wisely, put to good use, and then they will feel like they can put more in. But if, on the other hand, they don't know how much is coming in, they don't know what it's being used for, they're going to sit back and not share generously. Anyway, that's all in Second Corinthians chapter 8. Now, somehow or another I got lost here, and uh, where am I? I'm already through this, right? When you get to be my age, this sort of thing happens. I should tell you, I got a birthday card some time ago with my daughter. Happy 40th birthday. I looked at it, and then there was another card that said, Happy 30th birthday, and she said, You must add them together because they don't make numbers that go that high. (laughs) Here's where we were. The assumptions that we begin with, with which we begin, will most likely determine whether dependency develops. I just want to tell you a story about a church in South Africa. It's called the Assemblies of God. Now, there are three denominations in South Africa called Assemblies of God. This one is sometimes referred to as the Black Assemblies of God. But every year, their senior minister came to North America to ask for money for his poor church in South Africa. And once while he was here, by the way, his name was Reverend Nicholas Bangu, Once while he was in North America, God spoke to him and said, Don't ask these people for money. Go back home and get the money from your own people. And he said, But Lord, in my church, all I have are unemployed women and children. 
is that where you expect me to get the money? And the Lord said, yes, that's where you go to get the money. How many of you have thought that the ideal place to take a collection is unemployed women and children? No hands. Hmm. Okay. So anyway, God told him that's where you go. So he said to the Lord, I will do it, but you have to show me how. So he, so the Lord said to him, go home and teach those women how to care for their families. Teach the women how to evangelize their husbands. Teach them how to make something with their hands so they can earn a living. And teach them to give something back to God in thanksgiving. In other words, teach them to tithe. So Reverend Bangor did this. He went back home. He began to teach the women, caring for the families, evangelizing their husbands. And I can tell you they were successful at that because their churches now had men in them. But he also taught them that when they make something to sell, if they make ten dresses, one is for the Lord, it's not theirs. He introduced the concept of tithing. He said, if you make grass mats, while you're sewing them together, remember, if you make twenty, two are for the Lord. They're not yours. So this concept of Christian stewardship was built right into the earning process. It wasn't a matter of making as much as you can, and if you have anything left over, you can give it to God. No, no. Stewardship was built right in. Well, now, this church of unemployed women of children has been transformed. So much so that not only the husbands come, but every year they go to a conference in a little place called Tabanchu. Tabanchu. And it's the uh, uh, little place, the little town in South Africa, which is said to be the birthplace of the Tswana people. And the last time they went there, they took a collection. Not a collection just in plates like this, or in one of those, do you ever see a, a place where they have these uh, wooden things with a, a velvet bag? You know about those? That would be, that would be inadequate for what we're talking about. Um, the, the purpose of that, you know, is so that you can't make change in the collection. I think that's the reason for that. But they take the collection in bathtubs. These big zinc uh, oval shaped bathtubs that we have in Africa. And the collection they took, the last time I know that they met, was 15 million South African rand, and at seven to the dollar, that was over two million dollars put in the collection. From a church of unemployed women and children. How many of you think it's possible to take a collection among a church of unemployed women and children? Can I see some hands? <laughs> I have a question for you. Reverend Bangu was collecting money in North America to help his poor church. How long would it have taken for that church to be transformed on the money that he was carrying back to them? If you want to look seriously at overcoming unhealthy dependency, you have to look at something other than the flow of outside resources. Now, I'm not saying people who are in a desperate condition and won't survive unless they're helped. I'm not saying that we should withhold help from them. But if you want to see people transformed, it's got to be more 
than the flow of outside resources. In fact, if the flow of outside resources worked, then Haiti would be a shining example of development. And how many years resources have flown in there? And it didn't change that paradigm. So it's things like this, and I, I don't have time because uh, we have a, a short, and we only have 50 minutes, and I want to get Dr. Uh, uh, Keith to come up after a while. Uh, but I could tell more stories. I could tell stories about Bangladesh where spiritual principles were put in place that helped people to overcome. Let me uh, run through a few more examples here. We might assume that people are poor because they appear to us to be poor. Now, we can look at these assumptions. Um, I already told you about women and children in South Africa. The Presbyterian Church in East Africa was one of these churches that had the poverty mentality. People from Scotland started those churches about 1900 or so. And for 70 years, they remained dependent on the church in Scotland. But then, late 60s, early 70s, they elected a man to be their moderator, who, his name was John, and he said, what kind of church is this? It can't even pay my salary as moderator. We have to ask... Yes? <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> he said, we can't, we can't even pay the moderator's salary. We have to ask someone else for the money. So he decided to put a stop to it. And he asked the people in Scotland, don't send any more money for five years. Number two, don't send any missionaries for five years. And number three, don't make any missionary decisions for us for five years. We want to see if we can get this church on its feet. Very quickly, they began to pay for their own church buildings, pay their own pastor's salaries. They uh, bought vehicles for their pastors. They uh, planted new churches, all without funding from overseas. They started the pension fund for their pastor, something they had been told couldn't be done in Africa. You can't do it. But they did it. And then, one day, they heard that there were homeless children on the streets of Edinburgh, Scotland. So they took a collection of 200,000 Kenya shillings for, children's, for a children's home in, in Edinburgh, Scotland to say thank you to the missionaries for sending the gospel to them. Now, 200,000 Kenya shillings at that time was about 30,000 U.S. dollars. The same people who were dependent. I was doing a seminar in Togo, West Africa, here some time ago, and a young man from Cameroon uh, said he had a story to tell. He wanted to tell a story. And when he heard what I talk about, he thought this would fit with the theme of the day. And he said that they decided they wanted to evangelize about 30 villages in Cameroon somewhere. And so he said the church leaders decided to make up a budget to see if they could afford to do it. And when they made up the budget, it came to $100,000 worth of CFA francs. And he said, I assume that was too much. We can't do that. $100,000 worth of francs? But there was another church leader in the group who said, no, no, wait a minute. Let's try something. Let's ask people to bring whatever they have. If they, have an, if they can afford to bring an egg, let them bring an egg. If they can afford to bring a chicken, let them bring a chicken. If they can afford to bring a cow, let them bring a cow. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, 
each one according to what he has. <clears throat> they launched the project. They not only raised $100,000 worth of CFA francs, but they had enough left over to buy a vehicle for the project, something that wasn't even in the budget. Um, Notice the difference in the opinion of these two leaders. The one who was telling me the story is the one who said it can't be done. I assume this cannot be done. And if everyone had listened to him, they would have been right. You see the power of assumptions? The other man said, no, no, wait a minute. Let's try something. See what will happen if we do it this way. And when they tried the new assumption, it ended up in a different place and they raised that amount of money. I was doing a seminar with Dr. Dan Fountain. We've been cooperating quite a bit over the years. And one of the people in one of his courses told me about a short-term team that went to Turkey. And while they were there, one of the women in the church in Turkey had a medical problem. She needed surgery. And it was going to be very expensive. They uh, found it was going to be something like $5,000 for the surgery. So... The, the uh, medical team, the, the uh, North Americans who were on this medical, uh, short-term medical team, asked themselves, how much money do we have that we can give toward that? So they sat down and they counted up what they had and they decided that they, they could afford to put $700 toward it. But the leader of this medical team decided, uh, he, he was trying to be sensitive and listening to what the Lord was saying to him, and the Lord seemed to be saying to him, don't do anything. Don't give the $700. Just wait and see what happens. Lo and behold, the local people put together enough to cover the whole $5,000 and the medical team didn't need to put in any. Does that mean the medical team was not compassionate and willing to help? No. Let me tell you what I think was happening. Someone who was sensitive to what the Holy Spirit was saying did not put in that money and therefore the entire blessing for raising that money went to the local people who gave it. I'll tell you what I think about giving and receiving. In the book of Acts it says, it's more blessed to give Jesus himself. These are Jesus' words in the book of Acts. It's more blessed to give than to receive. We have got ourselves to the point in North America where we enjoy giving so much that I think sometimes we'd be just as happy if we could turn the whole world into receivers and at least we would get the good feeling of giving. And here's what I think we ought to be doing. In the sharing of the Christian gospel, we ought to be going around the world looking for people that we can encourage to become givers because giving is better than receiving. Think about it for a moment. We go out, present the gospel in such a way that people learn to love God and they give from their resources to Him. They get the blessing of knowing God and giving. The alternative is to go out, look upon people with such compassion that we end up giving them something, not inviting them to give, but allowing them to become dependent upon us and then for long term they are that we're doing the giving they're doing the receiving the church in China I don't have time to go into this I just have to move on I want to skip through here and I want to get to some hospitals because 
I'll tell you th- several little uh, sh- short stories about hospitals. Where in the world is Tumu Tumu? Anyone here ever hear of Tumu Tumu Hospital? Know oh, what I'm talking about? This was a Presbyterian hospital that um, was funded uh, by the Presbyterians from Scotland. It's about 150 kilometers away from Nairobi. The overseas funders developed donor fatigue and said, close the hospital. Close it. Well, the local people said, wait a minute. How can people so far away tell us that we have to close our hospital? I don't have time to go into this, but I've discovered over the years that the use of pronouns is very indicative of what's going on in the heart and mind of all of us. And so when someone says, tell those people to close their hospital, we cannot afford to, and you, when you start listening to the pronouns, you realize what's going on here. You know who's in the driver's seat by the very pronouns they use. But the local people took things into their own hands. The result is the Tumutumu Hospital was saved. How was it saved? Local people went back 150 kilometers from Tumutumu to Kikuyu, which is a suburb of Nairobi, same as the people group, but an area. And they started to march from Kikuyu to Tumutumu. They had medical people and pastors, evangelists on the team, and they were marching. They did roadside clinics. They did uh, prayers in the evening, evangelistic meetings in the evenings. And as they marched, this 150 kilometers, people were saying, why are you marching? And they said, we're trying to save our hospital. Help us. They raised awareness that way. So transformed was the hospital in the end that it went from the threat of closure to at one, shortly after this all happened, it went to 95% local support. It was 95% self-supporting. They set up new rules that people had to follow who worked there. No alcohol, so three staff immediately exited because they didn't like those rules. They set up rules like the latrines must be so clean that you could actually eat a meal in there if you wanted. Imagine laying down rules like this. Some of the kind of things that missionaries would not have been able to get away with. All because of the transformation of Tumutumu Hospital. And this story is available in my book, and by the way, I have a few copies of it here, and I'm not supposed to sell it, but if you want to make a donation, uh, you can pick them. But what I really recommend, here's what I recommend. Go down to the bookstore. They're selling it in the bookstore. Uh, also, CMDA is also selling it. But uh, it's in this book, and it's also uh, on our website. The Transformation of Tumutumu Hospital. It's become a showpiece in, uh, for other hospitals in Kenya. Where in the world is Clinica Biblica? Is anybody here of this one? Costa Rica, San Jose, Costa Rica. Clinica Biblica is a former mission-established hospital. It suffered from mission fatigue. The mission said, it's not contributing to church planning and evangelism, which is our purpose, close the hospital. Local people said, wait a minute. How can people so far away tell us to close our hospital? It had been started in 1929 and was threatened with closure in the 1960s. But psychological ownership transferred in the 1970s. I talk a lot about psychological ownership because I think that's the key to understanding how the dependency syndrome works. 
So local people said, let us take it over. The result is the Clinica Biblica was saved. In fact, they recently launched a $23 million edition. That's some, several years now since I learned this, but they launched a $23 million edition. The hospital was threatened with closure. But local people said, give us a chance. It's run professionally. They use crossover income. If you're familiar with uh, the medical terminology, the, the uh, lingo that's used uh, uh, for this kind of thing. Crossover income is when you charge wealthy people more so that you can serve the poor. And f- I understand, uh, yeah, here, uh, <clears throat> some people are skeptical. I'll have to run through this quickly. Uh, no. Uh, Clinica Biblica overcharges the rich. Some people say that. They, they call that Robin Hooding, or the crossover income. Um, I wanted to get to... Oh, I'll just... Uh, it's not appearing here. They, they uh, decided that 40% of the hospital... Um, I'm not sure what the right word is. Is it profit or something like that? Is turned back into the community. So they have a community consciousness. And um, there are some who say, yes, but they're overcharging the rich and so on like that. You can be critical of things like that if you want. But the fact is a transformation did occur. And some say that the evangelistic fervor was diminished. And then uh, others say, but a poor mission hospital is no guarantee the spiritual emphasis will be strong anyway. So, but the point is, Clinica Biblica was transformed. Dr. Keith, you've got to come and rescue this thing from my rambling. So uh, uh, while he's coming up, come on up, Keith. Um, my observation is that Clinica Biblica is no longer draining mission funds which were intended for evangelism because it shifted from a donor mentality. Come on, come on, Dr. Keith. Um, it shifted from the donor-sustained hospital to a business model in which it paid its own way. Now, let me tell you something about Dr. Keith. He comes from India. Uh, by the way, I'm going to have to give him this in a minute. Okay. It's a small room, I think. Yeah? yeah? <laughs> and uh, he has uh, been thinking and working on the issue of why Christian hospitals in India are closing at a high rate. And so I'm going to ask him just to tell you some of the things he has learned about the sustainability of Christian hospitals in India. I can echo what uh, Glenn was saying. The turn of the century. <coughs> Still hooked onto you, I think. <laughs> we are wired together. <laughs> India had so many um, foreign agencies that came out the Presbyterian Church, the Baptist Church, the Southern Baptist, the um, American Baptist, Danish Baptist, all of them were there in India and they started hospitals. Everything was good. We had the Methodist Church come into India and they started, I think, around eight hospitals within a short while, uh, early 1900s. 
um, we had the English Methodists come in from the UK and they started uh, hospitals, two of them in Madras. Um, and we had uh, a lot of other groups, Christian groups that had come to India. Up to the 1950s, um, there was a lot of money pouring into all these hospitals and they were able to sustain the work of the mission hospitals. After 1950 to 1970, most of the um, foreign contributions for running hospitals gradually diminished and that's when the local hospitals tried to look for some ways of, of perpetuating the hospitals and a lot of them started falling away. From 800 mission hospitals in India, large and small, we now have only about 300 that are there. And so a huge number have really closed down. There are a lot of, I mean, it would take a long, long time. I'm supposed to talk about it tomorrow. But it will take a long time to really um, talk about this in, <laughs> in the next few months. But uh, I, I was just trying to say that what Glenn was talking about, if you keep on pouring in money, the local people don't try to find local resources for making hospitals sustainable. There's a group of uh, very uh, fired up people. Two of them were classmates of mine who took uh, mission hospitals that were failing and have turned it around. Some have uh, had a little bit of help for some of the projects that they've started from, um, from the U.S., from the U.K., from, and from Australia. But almost all the funds are coming from the work of the hospital itself. We have to see the relevancy of these hospitals working towards achieving something for tertiary care as well as using the money that is available from, from uh, governing a hospital adequately to use that surplus to help the poor. We will have the poor in India always because of the dis discrepancy with the people who have and the people who don't have. That's not going to be, uh, go away at any time soon. But uh, the relevancy of mission hospitals achieving something that is, that is not ordinary becoming better. And for that, sometimes you have to rely on high-tech stuff. You have to buy equipment, which really is expensive. So unless you are able to bring the money in through services from the hospital, you cannot achieve that. So you have on one way saying, I want to help the poor. But unless you have the facilities and you have the paying patients who come in to receive that, you just can't achieve that. And that's where... Mission hospitals have been failing all these years because they said we are helping the poor and uh, a lot of funding was coming from outside and uh, people just didn't, didn't try to see how the hospital can, can achieve an income that would offset you know, uh, treating patients, poor patients there. And um, there's a group now called the Emmanuel Hospital Association that has taken over 20 failed hospitals and have turned them around Two of these guys were um, people whom I knew personally in med school, and, um, and I think that's the way to go. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're out of time. We're supposed to be stopping now.
let me tell you that he is doing a seminar on this tomorrow. Uh, what time is it tomorrow? Uh, three o'clock. Three o'clock. Three, three o'clock uh, go to Dr. Keith's seminar. You'll learn more about India. There's also an interactive forum on sustainability tomorrow morning, and several of us will be, I think it's in this room. And if you have a story to tell and you want to contribute, come tomorrow morning and contribute your story. It might not be a success story. It might be a story that's still waiting for a successful end, but come become part of the interaction. We're calling it an interactive forum. If nobody shows up with any story to tell, then we'll just have to we'll, we'll do something similar to what we've done today. But uh, we're inviting you, if you're involved in Christian hospitals and you have a story to tell, come join the interactive forum tomorrow. I'm sorry we're out of time. I'm out of breath, and uh, it was nice to have you come. And uh, feel free to go to the bookstore. It would seem that a failing hospital has two problems.